Welcome to Supreme Myths. I am so excited to talk to my guest today. He is Dr. Paolo Sandro, um, who is a lecturer in law at the University of Leeds and the first person of the 74 Supreme Myths podcasts to be from another country. Um, he has a PhD in legal theory from the University of Edinburgh, a PhD in public law from Rome 3. That's what I was told to call it, so I'm calling it Rome 3. He's an absolute expert in legal and constitutional theory, and his new book, The Making of Constitutional Democracy, uh, is an excellent, wonderful, and sophisticated book that anyone interested in constitutional democracy should read. Welcome to Supreme Myths. Thank you so much, Professor Siegel, and very kind of you for this wonderful introduction. I really appreciate it. Well, my name is Eric for the rest of this, uh, for the rest of this podcast, so we'll, we'll go from there. Um, no, thank you for being here. So let's start here um, from kind of an international perspective, not comparative, but international pers- perspective. Um, what do you think are the biggest flaws in the U.S. model of constitutional democracy? Um, it's, it's a big question to, to, to begin with, but I'll try my best to, uh, offer my view. I cannot speak for other people, but this is my, uh, informed view. Um, many people would start by, by talking about the problem with the Supreme Court and judiciary review. Um, you know, many things that I think, uh, your listeners, uh, will be familiar with the fact that the jurisdiction of the court was not established originally or not clearly established by the constitution itself, the nomination system, the appointment system, the life tenure, uh, option that was, uh, basically determined, uh, in terms of appointments, uh, the, you know, in general, the very, uh, uh, kind of quasi-legislative power that the U.S. Supreme Court enjoys. So, enjoys. so in this respect, I, um, I, I fully subscribe to one of your mottos by now, which is like, <laughs> not a court. Uh, you know, as, as, uh, as someone who has been studying constitutional Supreme Courts for a number of time around the world right now, I fully agree that, you know, if we were to take the U.S. Supreme Court as, a, as an example of constitutional Supreme Court, we would be doing a service to the concept because it's something that goes beyond. Um, But I wouldn't stop here because this is only part of the picture in my view. Uh, Problem, I think there is a problem even with the text of the constitution itself. It's it's an old, it's one of the oldest texts in the world in, in, in this sense, it's not necessarily a good thing. Because if we uh, basically read it together with the almost nearly impossibility to amend the text of the Constitution, at least in, in recent, in, in more modern times, uh, this creates an issue, in my view. And this has been studied uh, from a number of perspectives. You have political scientists saying very clearly that the U.S. Constitution is an outlier. The U.S. federal Constitution is an outlier in this sense, because, of course, there are many more modern constitutions or even state constitutions within the United States, you know, within the states that are much more modern, much clearer, much more explicit. And so some of the issues that present themselves because of the text of the federal constitution, they, they, they are not replied in other jurisdiction and in other systems. Um, but if I can add one more aspect, which I think it's not often part of the discussion, particularly sure. in constitutional theory, but I think it's actually very important. 
I think there is an issue with the democratic nature of the U.S. model of constitutional democracy as well. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the voting system. I'm not just talking about the fact that the president is not chosen by popular vote. I'm not just talking about, you know, the uh, issue with the electoral college system, with gerrymandering, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but even more important to me as someone who comes from Europe is the lack of protection for social rights in the constitution. Why? To put it in a, in a, in a, in a perhaps easy, simplified way, but I think it's quite powerful. Um, why, how can I consider my right to vote, my right to participate in the democratic game if I am sick or ill, if I'm hungry, if I don't have the basic means to sustain myself or my family, how can we consider that vote? So even if a person that is ill or hungry or doesn't have the basic means of subsistence votes in an election, how can we consider that vote really meaningful? How can we consider that participation? And I think this is very important and I and I, and I don't see this aspect often uh, you know, brought to the surface in let me pause you right there for a second, only because, and, and that's that's a very eloquent um, discussion. I would have added the malapportioned Senate to your list as, of, of, as 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 a top problem. But going back to what you just said, so on Monday, we're taping this on uh, Wednesday. Uh, it'll come out next Monday. So a week ago today, by the time people see this, I I, I did my fantasy list of ten constitutional amendments, and I said there were no order except for the first one. And number which I put first, and I said the first one is a constitutional right to a minimal level of um, uh, food, clothing, housing, shelter, medical care. And, and I just want to say the response I got to that, even from my you know my mostly progressive liberal followers, was, and this is so such an American thing. That's what I'm asking you from from not. The response was, well, we're all for that, except that'll put it in the court's hands and there'll be a disaster and we shouldn't let the court rule on those. Th- I mean, it all came back to the Supreme. I wasn't even thinking about the Supreme Court when I wrote that. I really, you know, most, I mean, I, I did a whole thing about what, what we need to change about the Supreme Court, obviously. But people were so far away in America from accepting that idea that it, it's just, it, it, it just floors me completely. And I'm very sorry to say that you're absolutely right. As a European, this kind of uh, reluctance to accept that basic social rights are a precondition of democracy, that you can't really have a democracy if a large part of your population is, you know, lacking those uh, minimum basic subsistence means. Uh, it's almost not questioned. Like, you know, we give it for granted. And right. and particularly uh, what you said about the, the, the argument immediately went back to the Supreme Court. I think this is interesting for two reasons. First of all, because it confirms what we both believe that the Supreme Court of the United States is a quasi-legislature or super-legislature in this respect. And that is very problematic, of course. There is, there is wrong. That doesn't apply to constitutional courts, you know, uh, uh, apex courts in, in many or most European countries. But at the same time, I think it also uh, shows that there is a misunderstanding of how constitutions are supposed to work. Because if a constitution uh, 
uh, you know, protects, mentions uh, a right to health, for instance, to healthcare. The first and foremost institutional actor with the duty to give effect to that right are not the courts, is the legislator. Of course. The courts <laughs> could only enter into the picture if either the legislator doesn't do something or does something that goes that uh, basically um, uh, uh, goes at the core of the right. Uh, there is a vulnus, basically. There is a there is a violation of the core of the right, and then the courts would intervene. But otherwise, there would be no doubt that the main uh, responsibility to implement to protect that right would be the legislator, not the courts. Right. It, well, we agree on that, and it's just it's just nuts how America operates in that way. That's my legal term. It's just nuts. Um, you mentioned other countries in Europe, and we'll get back to that in a second. Um, I have a question. So we, you and I keep referring to this as a constitutional democracy. Um, at least one of our Supreme Court justices, but really a lot of people in America, on the right mostly, would correct us and say, we're not describing this political system accurately. Justice Gorsuch, among others, would say, what we have is a republic not a democracy. And, I, and you are a legal theorist. You are, a, you know, you, you, you're incredibly um, smart about these kinds of issues. Do, should we even care about that terminology? Does it make a difference? Is it just a talking point? There's no question the founding fathers used the word republic, you know, the famous quotation from Benjamin Franklin. Is this something we should stop and pause on or should we just skip over it? I think we should just skip over. It's just merely talking point because a republic is... If you understand the term correctly, it's based on some version of the idea of non-domination, which is the, the contrary of majoritarianism, of majoritarian policies. It's the idea that there are some things that the legislator, no matter the majority, no matter if you have 90% popular support, you cannot do, like take away people's uh, basic rights, take away people's life or personal freedom without you know, due process, et cetera, et cetera. So to be fair, to me, this sounds more like, like a talking point rather than a, a real substantive, at least if you understand uh, you know, uh, a republic in, in the correct way. Well, we we agree we agree on that as well. So you mentioned apex courts or the highest courts in, in Europe, and I I've actually been a little stymied in my career in trying to really get down to the nitty gritty of comparing those courts to America. I kind of want a chart that says you know. But so I, I have several questions about the apex courts in Europe and and maybe in India too, if you can talk about that. So first of all, none of them have judges with life tenure, right? None of them. There's only my understanding is only Iceland has has an apex court with with life tenure. Is that accurate? Again, I, I'm um, in this respect. Uh, it, it is accurate as far as I know. So yeah. for the vast majority of uh, constitutional courts, I mean, we need to distinguish between the Supreme Court type and the constitutional court type. So basically, whether or not there is a specialized tribunal or court for the uh, judgment of constitutionality, but you know the the point is is well is is well made. Uh, the 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 life tenure is a is a very unique feature of 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 the American system for sure. And I'm assuming you agree with me that it's absolutely absurd. It's absurd, and I will tell you. I can give you an example from the system that I know best, uh, or or second best, or third best, which is the Italian one. Um, and the example, I think it's very interesting because it hasn't just to do with the length of tenure, 
but it has to do particularly with the nomination, with the appointment system. So if you were to go to Italy and if you were to talk to any political pundit, et cetera, et cetera, the identity of the single of the individual judges of the constitutional court would rarely be an issue, would rarely even be relevant. We have a constitutional court with 15 judges, right? Right. Their tenure is nine years. There is a, a term of nine years for each of them. But what is relevant is the uh, method of appointment. Why? Because it's not a single method. They, I always tell my students that the Italian system, I might be biased, fair enough, I'm originally <laughs> from Italy, but I do think that the Italian system represents a very good compromise. Why? Um, if you want, I can give you a very brief illustration of yes, this. Please. Because I think it, it's relevant. Um so uh, uh, Italy has a constitutional court with 15 judges. You know, I'm um, sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Can we just, before we get to that example, because some of my listeners are not lawyers, when you say constitutional court, can you explain that difference first and between a constitutional court and our Supreme Court and then move on to your Italy example, just so we're all on the same page? I apologize for the interruption. So perfect. So in Italy, we have a model that is very similar to the to the French one as well and is um, uh, replicated in, in several European countries, which is we have an apex court for criminal and civil cases, which is la, uh, the Corte di Cassazione, which is the highest court for civil criminal matters, et cetera, et cetera. We have a different system for administrative law, judicial review of administrative action. So we have a separate administrative court system. And then we have a separate constitutional court, which only adjudicates on the compatibility between legislation and the Italian constitution. So I'm referring to the Italian constitutional court right now. Okay. And the method of appointment is actually threefold. So 15 judges overall, Five of them are appointed by the President of the Republic, which is an independent guarantee institution of the Italian uh, constitutional democracy. He's the head of state, elected by both chambers of parliament and representatives from regional council in a ad hoc uh, specific electoral college. So he or she gets to nominate five judges to the Supreme Court, to the Constitutional Court, sorry. Then you have five judges elected by Parliament, which are then basically, they get this indirect democratic legitimation because they're elected by, uh, by sure. the chambers of Parliament. And then you have five judges elected by the ordinary and administrative courts. So the overall picture you have is a constitutional court that is very diverse in terms of the methods of appointment, which represents uh, a diversity of legitimations as well. One is the court itself, one is parliament, and one is the president of the republic. And that overall gives the court a much stronger legitimacy, because as I said before, the identity of the single uh, judges will almost never matter. I can tell you, you know, it, it will never matter. It will always be the courts that matters. So that is so obviously a better model than the United States model. I'm not saying the, the specifics, but having different constituencies be responsible for different justices is just, it's a no-brainer. Um, no, it's a no, no life tenure. 
Yeah, no, no life tenure. Let me ask you a question about life tenure for a second, though. So you said nine-year terms. Is, yeah. So when I, when I actually in America today, at least in my orbit, both among conservative and liberal law professors, life tenure is now considered wrong by most academics. That was not true 15 years ago. It really wasn't, but it's true today. Um, but I still want to ask this question because this is the argument I used to get. Is there a problem with a judge in his or her seventh, eighth, or ninth year hearing cases that could implicate, and writing decisions, that could implicate their future job prospects? Will they be thinking ahead if I rule in this way or that way? Because you know, America is, is infamous for the revolving door in our military industrial complex between members of the federal government going to work for construction companies and, and military companies and that kind of thing. But I understand that I understand the argument that, that if you know you're going to be done in four years and you're looking ahead to your personal ambitious career, you may be tainted in how you think about cases if they might implicate future job opportunities. Um, again, this might be a very specific U.S. Uh, preoccupation, preoccupation. Why? First of all, because um, I was checking just before we started talking today, and at the moment, 10 out of 15 of judges on the Italian Constitutional Court are university professors. Right. So there is a, there is a um, some sort of basic uh, minimum requirement that would be very hardly... Uh, you know, uh, bypassed by any single of the three methods of appointment. Um, at the same time, again, perhaps in the U.S., given the revolving doors you were talking about, this could be an issue. But it, it, I don't think it's an issue that would be paramount because you could basically just establish that after one's term at the Supreme Court, certain jobs in government or et cetera, et cetera, they cannot be taken. I mean, it's fine for someone to go back and being a professor, of course, I don't see any sure. issue with that, but there could be basically a an incompatibility. And you could say, look, you have had one of the most important, one of the most prestigious public offices in the country. One of the requirements is that after it, you basically take a hit from a career perspective. But I don't think that would be I don't think it's a cogent, it's a strong argument against the idea of, of putting uh, temporal limits to appointments. That's always been my answer. My answer also is, given our unique system, if you want to be a Supreme Court justice and you have a term of 18 years is the term that's bandied about in America, then you can be a lower court judge, but you that's your, it's your, it, that, you have two choices, retire or be a lower court judge. You're not a, now, when I say that, of course, everybody says that would be unconstitutional and we're back to square one with all the problems in, America, in the American political system. Um, so looking at all of Europe, the German Supreme Court I know is really pretty strong. I don't know a lot about the Italian and French Supreme Courts. How prestigious is a Supreme Court appointment, uh, I'm sorry, a constitutional court appointment in most European countries? It is very prestigious, of course. It's considered to be a honor, first and foremost, because someone is called to basically represent perhaps the, again, we keeping in mind the difference between some systems in which there is a constitutional court and that sure. an apex court, but it's still considered to be very important. But again, I would struggle uh, even though I, you know, I'm, I'm 39, I would struggle to 
think of any specific judge from Germany, from Italy, from Spain, because almost never the identity of the judge matters. And so just to reiterate the point, because of the way the system is designed, this automatically, like implicitly makes the identity of the single judge. Now, I'm not saying that the identity of the single judges doesn't matter, because of course, an issue that we have in general in judiciary in many European countries is representation, for instance, of uh, minorities. Mm -hmm. So, of course, this is a problem when you see constitutional or it's starting to be perceived as it should as an issue when you have. And, and there are some exceptions. There are some systems in which there are some quotas, for instance, considered for certain, um, you know, regional, perhaps minorities. But there. There is a sense in which the identity is important, but there is another sense in which the system is geared so that the single identity is not decisive. It's not, so something like what happens in the U.S. with, uh, you know, Justice Thomas, for instance, or Alito could could simply not not be possible uh, in 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 or, many or, European or Ginsburg, European or Justice Ginsburg, or Ginsburg. Yeah. Yes, of course, in the, the other side. Yes. Um, Susanna Sherry is a emeritus law professor at Vanderbilt Law School. Here, I went to Vanderbilt. Um, and she was very instrumental in, early in my career, so I'm biased in favor of her. I think she's terrific. And just recently, she recently meaning last couple of years, she wrote a piece about celebrity justices and in America. And what a dangerous and terrible turn this has become for all kinds of reasons. And one of the things she wishes for would be a system where we really don't know much about the individual justices because it's supposed to be an institution, not individual justices. And it's really a good piece. And, and do, 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 do scholars across, I'm not I'm asking you to speak, I know it's crazy for me to ask you questions speaking for all of Europe. I don't mean to do that. I, I, but but I'm, I know so little about this subject, which is one of the reasons I, I read your book and wanted you to be on here. Um, are there any Western European countries that, that have the kind of celebrity culture for their justices that we do? Is there any? I know Israel does, right? The, the chief justice of Israel at one point was a very kind of famous celebrity type person, I think. Is there any other analogy? So um, I don't think there is a, a, any case that the guy gets closer to the US. We had similar, I, I live and work in, in the UK, in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And in, in recent times, in the last 10 years, we had something similar, uh, particular with some members of the uh, Supreme Court in the in the UK. And um, I see that as very problematic as well, because no matter whether the judges are celebrated or, you know, or criticized, but they should not uh, basically reach that uh, level of popularity in which they become almost, you know, as it happened, as you said, with with Ginsburg, but, you know, with, with many other judges um, for their own sake, because a judge should speak through their opinions. Uh, extra uh, judicial opinions as well, because of course we want judges to engage uh, further, for instance, writing sure. extra judicially. So, you know, sure. explaining perhaps uh, past cases or explaining trends or, but there is a, there is some sort of, there is a level in which a certain degree of, 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 um, of lack of uh, spotlight is actually conducive and important also towards the independence of the judge, the appearance of independence, uh, of independence that we know is as important as 
independence itself. It's the appearance of independence, uh, independence itself. So I, I couldn't agree more. And in the UK, in the last 10, 15 years, we had certainly uh, perhaps uh, some some issues with with uh, judges being becoming celebrities in a way that you know uh, is problematic for the rule of law in in some respects. I, I'm sure this is not the reason. This is probably a hopelessly silly and trite comment, but I do sometimes wonder if the whole uh, wig thing in England is is one way of being uniform and not standing out. In, I'm sure it's not true, but it just occurs to me that maybe a dress code would be a good idea. You don't have to respond to that. Um, so why, why – my understanding of the history of this uh, – of and then let's talk about judicial review for a minute. The idea of courts being able to strike down acts of the national legislature in whatever country we're talking about. My unbelievably rudimentary understanding is that sometime after World War II, European countries started looking at the American system and thinking, well, maybe judges should have this power directly. I know the arguments about judges exercising it indirectly in England at the common law by saying statute A couldn't possibly mean what it says, so we're going to interpret it differently. Uh, I do think there's a big difference between that and invalidating a statute, but I don't want to get into that. My question is... um, why did many European countries choose to go the route of having apex courts for criminal and civil cases or administrative cases, but a specialized constitutional court? Do I, do I have the history right? And if I do, what made that shift? Well, the influence of one single uh, legal and constitutional theorist, Hans Kelsen, who's uh, famous in the U.S. as well because sure. he spent the last uh, uh, part of his life in the U.S. Uh, Kelsen was uh, absolutely crucial. Uh, you know, it, it wouldn't be a mischaracterization to say that he invented the model of the constitutional court and he worked for the establishment of the Austrian uh, court uh, in this respect. So um, I think that uh, besides the influence of Kelsen, which was crucial in this picture, what is also relevant is that uh, many European democracies uh, before and during and, you know, before the Second World War, they were uh, subject to uh, totalitarianisms. Right. Italy, you know, uh, Spain, uh, Germany, of course, and so forth. And with that, it came the uh, realization that even if you have a constitution, because most European countries had a constitution before that, but if the constitution can be changed with the whim of a majority in parliament, remember, Hitler and, and Mussolini were elected democratically. Yes, Nothing, you know, but we might, there are historical accounts that there might have been, but from, from, from all, uh, from all purposes, they were elected democratically. And once they were in government and they had control of, well, they, the parliament, you know, responded to them in, 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 in terms of political influence, that's when the issues started to arise. So the realization was that, that a constitution, it's not, it's, it's not enough if, 
There is no level of entrenchment. Now, we can discuss about optimal level of entrenchment, and that's a discussion that we absolutely should have. That's exactly the type of discussion that we should have. And I believe, as I write in the book, that the legitimacy of a constitutional democracy is a complex function of many different factors, including the capacity to amend the constitutional text. But at the same time, uh, lawmakers, politicians around Europe in the aftermath of the Second World War realized that we needed to put something outside the realm of majoritarian ordinary politics and that we should entrust the policing of this area of what cannot be disposed of, cannot be decided by any majority to an independent uh, body. Uh, namely a separate constitutional court. Well, that makes complete sense to me. And once again, America um, is, is quite the outlier. How old is the Italian constitution? Uh, the Italian constitution is about uh, 70, uh, 70 years old uh, right now. So it's, um, let me just make sure, it should be um, uh, 1948. Okay, uh, okay. so post-World War well, II 19- makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was... Um, Enacted in uh, 47, um, and it, it came into force 1948, 1st of January uh, 1948. Okay. So 1948 is 10 years before I was born. Um, I'm, I'm old, I'm very old, but I'm not ancient. So the, the Italian constitution is 10 years older than I am, and I'm, I'm terrible at math on the spot, but hundreds of years younger than the United States constitution. Uh, I suspect that... Until recently, there were probably a lot of people in Italy who were – a lot of important people in Italy who were alive when, the, when that constitution was ratified. Maybe not so much in the last 10 years, but certainly 25 years ago, there would have been people alive when that constitution was ratified. Um, I mean, today, I guess they'd be set, they would be 74. So I'm sure there's still a lot of people alive when that constitution was ratified. Talk to me about how the Italian system deals with the concept of originalism. Okay, so that's um, that's a difficult question to answer in the sense that um, the concept of originalism is effectively foreign to many constitutional debates uh, in Europe. Not in the sense that there is no uh, equivalent in terms of the debate about the meaning of the constitution, but the debate is not framed in this way. Now, Something that um, it's it's quite accepted, I would say, in most European countries is what uh, you guys in the U.S. would call some version of living constitutionalism. So it is accepted that there is a need to uh, basically interpret the Constitution in a way that is, you know, uh, that that keeps uh, basically uh, keeps the pace with with the right. time. At the same time, though, there are limits to what can be done. And there is also a different way of understanding the relationship between the constitutional court and the legislature. And there is, um, and there the is what, a case I'm sorry, from... I'm sorry, the constitutional court and the... I didn't get the last word there. I apologize. Sorry, the constitutional court and the legislature, so the Italian parliament. Got so it. The, the oh, body yes. okay, responsible yeah. for, making, for yeah. making legislation. Yes, yeah. sorry. No, so go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. 
Sorry, no. Um, and I think there is an interesting uh, example that I wanted to mention to, to you and your listeners, because I think it might also illustrate the different understanding of the role of a constitutional court within a constitutional democracy. So, as you know, Italy, you know, we have the Vatican. Italy is a prevalent uh, Catholic uh, cultural uh, society. And clearly the issue of end-of-life treatment, possibly assisted suicide, is very um, lively and highly debated and so forth. Um, one thing that happened uh, recently in uh, 2017, 18 and 19 that it's, it's very interesting is the following. So 2017, Italian legislation recognized the right to refuse life-sustaining treatment in case of, you know, like someone that, who's terminally ill sure. and obtain deep sedation until death supervenes. But it didn't recognize the right to speed up that process, basically, the right to, uh, you know, to, to some version of assisted suicide for terminally ill right. people. Um, uh, there was a famous case in which uh, an Italian citizen um, basically uh, wanted to end his life because he was going through incredible pains. Uh, you know, it wasn't life anymore, et cetera, et cetera. He couldn't do in Italy. So he went to Switzerland to end his life where this is possible. And he was accompanied by an Italian uh, member of parliament who then auto-denounced himself to the investigator saying, I helped uh, this person to, you know, commit right. suicide. And this was a strategic uh, case because basically what they, what the Italian politician who has been advocated, Marco Cappato, is, is quite uh, known in Italy. What he wanted to prompt was for the constitutional court to consider the constitutionality of the um, uh, uh, prohibition of assisted suicide. So uh, there is a norm in the Italian criminal court which prohibits assisted suicide. What happened before the constitutional court when the question was referred, when the constitutionality question was referred by the ordinary tribunal to the constitutional court was very interesting. The constitutional court, the Italian constitutional court, with an un unprecedented move, a move that never happened before in Italy. There are precedents in Germany for this kind of move, but not in Italy. The constitutional court paused the proceedings for one year saying, look, there is a problem here at least in some extreme situations, uh, uh, you know, the uh, assisted suicide should not be punished criminally. Mm -hmm. It gave even a set of criteria in which, you know, to identify what kind of situations they were talking about, but they said parliament should legislate on it. The Italian parliament should legislate on it. So they gave one year to the Italian parliament to actually make the law and change the law and make sure that the law uh, you know, uh, was compatible with right. the constitution. The Italian parliament didn't do it. The Italian parliament is not famous for their, um, you know, uh, promptness or for their Courage. responsive, uh, <laughs> unfortunately. And so one year later in 2019, the court had to basically uh, uh, declare the inconstitutionality with that particular norm of the criminal code. But what is interesting here is what the court did. The court recognized that there is a problem with the constitutionality of the criminal code provision, but said, especially if we were to just, you know, declare the inconstitutionality, this would create likely a 
a legislative vacuum, a gap, which could then be exploited in a number of ways. And it's the responsibility of the parliament to legislate. Now, some commentators have seen this as paternalism from the Italian Constitutional Court. They basically said, well, you know, the Constitutional Court should have just made their job and just declared the unconstitutionality and that's it. But I actually, I like this because the Constitutional Court recognized the balance between, you know, the role of courts sure. and the role of parliament and told parliament, you need to act on it. And parliament didn't, but that's on parliament. That's not on the Constitutional Court. I really think that this kind of dialogue is the way forward in constitutional democracies. So let me ask you about that, though, because so so the Italian Supreme Court says there's a problem, this this criminal prohibition violates the the constitution parliament the do- right to self sorry the right to self determination in the constitution there are two articles right. in the italian constitution that recognize right. the right to self determination of the person but what does that decision do if parliament does nothing so they had one year later to actually declare the inconstitutionality in a limited exception they didn't legalize assisted suicide but they said in a number in in a, in a in a specific context if the person is terminally ill uh you know they don't have any perspective etc cetera, etc cetera, and life is basically completely uh unlivable for them you know that they cannot go through because of the pain etc cetera, etc cetera. Right. in those cases a prohibition of assisted suicide is incompatible with the right to self determination so if someone were prosecuted course, for it they could use that decision as a shield well, the, the, that part of the uh, legislation now is, yes, basically, to, so yeah. to speak. Basically, yeah. they cannot be condemned in this respect. Yeah. But the, the legislative gap remains there because the legislative right. gap remains because the Constitutional Court cannot write legislation. They can only declare if part of a legislative clause or right. one you know act itself is uh, unconstitutional, but they cannot write it themselves. That is still the job of parliament. And that is a huge, huge difference between European Supreme Courts, certainly the Italian Supreme Court anyway, and the United States, where the court issues common law decisions all the time with rules and requirements and legislation. You know, one of my pet peeves in American constitutional law is this idea that Roe versus Wade, as originally written, was a constitutional outlier because it sounded legislative in the first trimester of the rule is this, second trimester of the rule is that. But in fact, Roe Roe versus Wade, not defending on the merits, and obviously its significance was greater, is no different than hundreds of other American Supreme Court decisions that effectively make the rules. The rules for and, and, and they and they do it in a very micro way. I mean the rules of affirmative action, which are going to be changed in a year, but right now there are at least five requirements universities have to go through, and it has to be individualized review and no quotas and look at alternatives and all of this stuff that sounds like a legislature. It really does, not like a court. And I take it what you're saying is in Italy that doesn't happen. There are some very small, there is a, a limited number of exceptional cases in which the court can integrate, but, you know, the the, the, the core judgment is a judgment of unconstitutionality, basically, which, of course, sometimes creates uh, issues as well. And this is something that, for instance, the Constitutional Court also does when they um, 
in Italy, we have something called, we have referendum, of course, so direct right. referendum in which uh, that can be proposed by uh, ordinary people and then they can basically put to a vote. You mean democracy? But before the, you, you mean just yes. democracy, something we don't have in America, yes. but go ahead. <laughs> but before that happens, the constitutional court performs a, uh, a analysis of the questions that are being posed oh. Uh, in the referenda. And in some cases, the Constitutional Court said, look, this phrasing of the question is not okay, because it would create potentially a gap in the legislation, basically. So there is this idea that the legal system is not single clauses or single acts, but there is a whole system to consider in this respect as well. So for the non-lawyers listening, uh, George Washington, our very first president, wrote a letter to the Supreme Court early on in our country's history. Of course, he was the first president asking the court for some advice on some very thorny and tricky questions about international law for the purpose of, I think, giving I mean, a lot of purposes. But one of them, he wanted to know what he could negotiate and what he couldn't ahead of time, which would be much more efficient than finding out after the fact. Famously, uh, the Supreme Court wrote back a letter saying, no, we don't do that. We only decide cases and controversies. And that would be asking us to do something we don't do. I've always thought that is crazy. Why not iron out some or at least discuss some of the constitutional infirmities of referenda in your case, but legislation in our case, before it gets enacted? Like, why is that a bad idea? And it's just one of the peculiarities of the American system. Do you agree with me about all that? Yeah. And um, as an outsider, someone who is outside the U.S. but knows uh, mm -hmm. a bit about the U.S. You know system. a lot about the U.S. Don't be so modest. No, I know a bit. I would not <laughs> yeah. dare to say I know a yeah. bit. But one thing that always strikes me, and I'm going to use some sort of uh, metaphorical uh, image right now. I see the U.S. constitutional system as a house built on foundations that with time revealed to be quite shaky. But rather than reconsidering the foundations to make sure that the building, that the edifice is actually structurally sound, what has happened in the last 100 years or, you know, you decide that the temporal uh, sure. extent we're talking about is instead trying to uh, reinforce the building, but basically patching what cannot really be patched, because I think there are fundamental questions about the legitimacy of the U.S. constitutional state, uh, of the U.S. constitution, again, uh, keeping in mind the lack of the, the impossibility of amendment, et cetera, et cetera, the Supreme Court powers. Though I, I, I do not think, so if we go back to originalism, originalism is one way in which certain U.S. constitutional lawyers have tried to you know, patch the edifice, basically trying to constrain judges, et cetera, et cetera. I think they are simply asking something impossible. No theory of interpretation, in my view, can uh, make up for a text that is old, scant. It's really vague. I mean, um, if I can, if I can just um, uh, 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 explain this one second. Sure. Um, in my book, I criticize uh, political constitutionalists in, on a number of respects, and I use Jeremy Waldron as one uh, example. 
but I should be fair to Jeremy Waldron. Jeremy Waldron, in three of his major works, um, he repeats the same passage in which he says that basically American constitutional experience uh, uh, teaches us that, you know, the words of the Bill of Rights can be made to mean whatever they want. Waldron is absolutely right, in my view, when he's talking about the U.S. Supreme Court. The problem that I have with Jeremy Waldron is that he uses this to argue against judiciary review, constitutional review all around the world. Yeah. And that is problematic because, in my view, he's committing a one theory fits all fallacy. But when he talks about the U.S. is absolutely spot on. You cannot make up for the scant nature, the old nature, the vague nature of the text with theories of interpretation. Perhaps if there was a strict doctrine of precedent, you know, yeah, in which that's a fantasy. Built, <laughs> yeah, well, in which the courts over decades built a basically, you know, a, a living constitutionalist expansion, you know, the, the difference between interpretation and construction. So the, the courts constructs, but it sticks by what it says. And that is that can be considered as a coherent system of precedent, then, you know, perhaps that could be a way. It wouldn't be my preferred way, but right. perhaps that could be a way. But recent decisions shows us that. Um, not just recent decisions. We can go back to 1870 well, and 1871. It was the same problem. Uh, so on my podcast, as my listeners know, I basically have a rule that I have to mention retired Judge Posner at least once. Um, so this is my opportunity to mention retired Judge Richard Posner, my, my friend. Uh, and, and everybody called him Dick, not just me. Uh, Dick said all the time that one of the main problems with the American legal system in general and constitutional law specifically was that it's always looking backwards. That it, it's, 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 even if you're not an originalist, it's still a looking back perspective. And, you know, he, this is a man appointed by Ronald Reagan, who when he was appointed by Ronald Reagan was deeply conservative. He morphed over the years a little bit. But his position is that's not what people should in power should do. We should be looking forward to, to new times and new situations and new facts. And the age of the American Constitution, as you've mentioned now five or six times, is a big part of what he thought. And I assume you agree with all of that. I do, but I wonder, looking forward rather than backwards would entail, you cannot just look forward without, you know, just brushing aside what happened in the past. Sure. I think that looking forward would require a moment of reckoning, a moment of reckoning about, you know, the disparities that affects American society much more than right. certainly many European societies in this respect also because of the lack of protection for those social rights that we right. you know we have in Europe in in Italy if i am ill i can see a doctor if i have a serious injury i can go to a hospital you know and and get treated and 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 be well again and as we know yeah of course obamacare etc cetera, etc cetera, but in the us it, it it's completely different so yeah. my point is that i absolutely agree that we should look forward but i don't think that can happen before a moment of reckoning with the current foundation of the system and the way to do that would be a constituent assembly the way to do that would be to 
try at least. I mean, if it doesn't work, we saw that Chile right now, the draft constitution uh, that was uh, drafted uh, just now was rejected by the population. But hopefully that's not the end of the story and there will be a new draft hopefully soon and it will go uh, back to the to the Chilean people to say yes or no. But at least try rather than, you know, trying still to patch the uh, the building, the edifice. To me, that's that's not a... A feasible strategy on the long term. So you raise a really interesting question about America circa 2022. Um, there are people like Professor Sandy Levinson, the University of Texas, a friend, and I think one of the first people on my podcast, my first guest. Sandy has been saying for decades, our constitution is dumb. It's stupid. He gives about 50 reasons. And we should absolutely try to fix it through a constitutional convention that is not dumb. I think he, you know, he's written about constitutional stupidities, constitutional oddities. He's probably the most famous proponent of that. And I love Sandy. He is a combination law scholar, political scientist, everything about him I, I like. But there are many, many, many other smart people in America, law professors and others, who are terrified of that prospect. Because no matter how bad it is today in America, and it's really bad, there is a fear that doing that would create a very states' rights regime that also had a streak of authoritarianism to it, but certainly one that the the, the push for this is coming from the right, and it's coming from a states' rights perspective, and it's coming from places like Texas, and people are very nervous that... In 2022, given our geographical boundaries and all of that, it's just impossible to have 50 separate states with a lot of power. It just doesn't work. Not to, and there's a whole question of nuclear weapons, among other things. Do you have an opinion about that for America? I know you consider yourself not an expert on America, though I think you know more about it than you're letting on. Um, but do you have a th- is Sandy right, or are the people who are worried about this right? Um. I don't think I I can adjudicate on that okay. in the sense that um, I can see I can see where both sides are coming yeah. from. Uh, I respect the fact that the history of I know the history of the uh, of the fifty states through basketball, and I know <laughs> uh, you know uh, learning the differences. And yeah. um, I should mention, uh, by the know, way, that I, those who are just listening to this, that Dr. Sandro was wearing a Toronto uh, Raptors jersey, which uh, I did not know. We we talk a lot on on Twitter together, but I did not know you were a big NBA fan. I like you even more. I liked you a lot before this. Now I really like you. But go ahead. <laughs> um, so I. The fact of the cultural differences and social differences between the states certainly represents uh, an issue in this respect. So, but this cultural difference and social differences are present more or less in many other countries. I mean, Chile is a country with big social differences as well. Sure. And uh, and there were clearly perhaps um, you know some shortcomings in the way that the some at least some commentators, some pundits are saying that the way that the constitutional assembly was uh, organized uh, were were problematic in a way, but it did not stop from trying. So what I'm asking is some sort of um, what I subscribe by, one of my favorite uh, uh, thinkers, philosophers of law and democracy is an Italian uh, professor, formal judge called Luigi Ferraioli. And Ferraioli, if he has taught me one thing, is methodological optimism. It's the idea that just because something 
it's it, it's not likely or perhaps it's it's not real yet it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try and very often the argument the the, the counter argument is immediately oh but yeah you're a utopia um, you know it's it's a utopia uh, you know that this cannot happen the utopia is thinking in my view and in ferraioli's view the utopia is thinking that things can just keep going the way they are and they will get better somehow they will not get better unfortunately unless i think in the US in general but generally speaking even if we're talking about you know the big challenges that the world uh, has to reckon with climate change first and foremost uh, inequalities between uh, you know uh, uh, sure. uh, different countries etc sure. etc we're running out of time I, I i i simply have to ask you a very in the weeds question and i i apologize to the audience federal courts nerd alert right now um, because you said something earlier that I really want to talk about. And um, I do know that some very sophisticated federal court scholars watch this podcast. So um, I hope at least they will appreciate this. I apologize to the rest. You said um, at one point that the administrative court, I think you said, referred a case to the Italian Supreme Court. Is, do I have that right? The that the ordinary one of the ordinary courts referred the court to the Italian Constitutional Court. Yes, the case. How does so? I, I, I'm I'm going to make my point in a minute. But before I do, how does that work exactly? So the uh, the system of you know the Kelsenian system basically works in a centralized way. So it's the Constitutional Court that can only adjudicate on the constitutionality of laws of legislation right. and what ordinary tribunals, administrative courts and tribunals can do, they can, in Italian we say sollevare, which literally means to lift, but it means to send the question saying, look, uh, I have these proceedings in front of me, uh, court, judge, etc., etc. There is a doubt, usually, uh, you know, um, a question of constitutionality is usually raised by one of the parties to the proceedings, right. that this particular provision might be unconstitutional. What do you think? And then the courts decide whether to hear the case or not, and then, you know, decides on the, uh, adjudicates on the constitutionality, basically. So here's the weeds question that's behind my question to you. And thank you. That was a great explanation. The idea of one district court judge in America these days issuing a national injunction against a federal law has been in the news quite a bit. And, and um, certainly during the Obama administration, there were judges, especially in Texas, uh, who would just enjoin everything Obama was doing. And I'm talking about one person issuing a national injunction. And, and in America, in the, until about the 1950s, I don't remember the exact year or so, but, but there was a time when if there was a constitutional challenge to a federal statute, then instead of having one judge have a trial or, or a hearing, it would have to be a three-judge court. And there were reasons for that, I think, one of which was if it was a constitutional question, it was very weighty, and we wanted to have three judges you know, signing on. And then there would be direct appeal from that three-judge court to the Supreme Court. Again, maybe the idea was to get it there faster than going through the Court of Appeals and so on. The reason, I think, one of the reasons that eventually was abandoned, no longer have that, 
is because there were so many jurisdictional questions raised about when is a constitutional question fairly raised? What if the constitutional question is not dispositive of the case? What if there's a whole bunch of other like state law questions involved and the constitutional question? America is so legalistic that lawyers would spend clients' money litigating whether or not the three-judge court had jurisdiction to begin with. And that created a whole body of law that was really silly and, and a waste of everybody's time. And I'm just wondering if that's an issue in Italy or if it's just very simple. Judge says there's a constitutional issue. It goes to the Supreme Court. No one says, no, wait a minute. There is no constitutional issue. Don't take the case. That happened a lot with the three-judge court in America. Is it a smooth transition or is it as complex as the old American system used to be? Uh, so as far as I remember, uh, you know, this is something that uh, my studies of, of uh, Italian constitutional procedure are from about 20 years ago now. So, okay. you know, I, have, I, I might, I hope I'm not saying anything wrong, but basically the idea is that there is a double, uh, so the constitutional court could be uh, raised by one of the parties to the original proceedings, then the judge or the court in the first proceeding would already make basically a judgment as to whether the, const the, the constitutional question is relevant or not, is dispositive or not. So there would be already a first scrimmage, so to speak, or a first right. screening right. of the relevance of the constitutional court and the acceptability. And then there would be a second one uh, from the constitutional court. And this kind of mechanism is repeated also within the larger European uh, uh, system. Uh, I mean, in the European Union, we don't have a constitutional court. We have the European Court of Justice. But the European Court of Justice is the final arbiter of all questions of compatibility between EU law and national law, according to the Court of Justice of the European Union. And they also have this system of basically trying to screen those questions right. that, you know, are relevant or not. So there is a... If I may, on the American system, I think there are two things that are problematic here, Eric. Yeah. The first one is that the idea of politically appointed judges in most European countries would be seen as a oddity, if not a, as if a dangerous thing, because judges should not be nominated politically. In Italy, the way you become a judge is there is a very, very difficult public selection that everyone with the law degree, et cetera, et cetera, can, you know, uh, uh, basically can try. Right. And every year, actually, they nominate far fewer judges than the, the places that are available. Why? Because existing judges want to make sure that the people that are nominated that become judges have a certain basic qualification, expertise. Yeah, you know, you're breaking my heart here, skill, but go on. <laughs> reasoning skills. I'm, I'm, you know, it, I'm, I'm now talking a lot without saying much. And that's the first thing. But the other thing is also the what you were saying that in the past there would be a three-judge yeah. panel, so to speak, that would consider. That in itself is very important. The last chapter of the book, I uh, do a, a big discussion on the separation of powers doctrine. And I make some analytical clarification. I distinguish between separation as independent, so different function on bodies that are independent, or division of power, which is instead the same function that is divided across multiple decision makers to make sure of what? To make sure that that power is exercised not in a bias, not in a, you know, um, uh, how can I say, not in a uh, whimsical way, but rather there is at least a debate. Mm -hmm. So 
there is a reason why courts in almost every uh, you know uh, modern legal system that I know of, they are usually from one judge panel to three judges panel to five to seven, nine, eleven, fifteen. Because that is in itself, it's a division of power guarantees. The idea that it's not going to be one person, which of course means that there might be bias, there might be, you know, whimsical application. Some recent decision, uh, you know, from from American judges, uh, you know, uh, uh, politically nominated judges. I read through those decisions and as a as a lawyer, my brain exploded. I'm sorry to use a a, 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 (laughs) a vivid image, but they made no sense whatsoever as legal decisions. And then we go back to the to the appointment system. And that is also something that is very problematic, in my view, in the U.S. system. We are out of time. Um, I have learned so much from this, and just um, I'm going to rant a little bit for about 30 seconds. Um, it seems so crystal clear to me that so many parts of the European system of the relationship between courts, parliaments, democracy, and the people are just so much healthier. Not to say the Europeans don't have issues, not to say that those courts aren't controversial. I know the German Supreme Court often does controversial things. But the effort to avoid politically nominated judges, the effort to distinguish people who are good at deciding very large and largely philosophical questions of constitutional law versus judges who are very good at deciding statutory interpretation or criminal cases or administrative questions, all of that is just, in my opinion, no one surprise anybody, but so much superior to how we do it. And yet there is this idea of American exceptionalism that runs so deep that that makes us incapable of looking at other countries and saying, maybe they do this in a way that is better than us. I don't know how to fight it. I've been trying to fight it for 30 years. I've failed largely. Um, And it was so refreshing to hear um, your discussion of and summary of some of the key institutional differences between constitutional courts in Western Europe uh, and and here. And I think we could have also brought in other Israel and India and other places as well, all all of which, in my opinion, none of them perfect and all of which do it better than the United States does. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Sandro. This was just fantastic. And I'm sorry we don't have more time because I could talk to you forever. But thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure and a honor. And I do want to say one more time, the name of the book is The Make, and I want my audience to listen to the title, The Making of Constitutional Democracy. Now, I won't lie, it is a, it is a, it is a very, um, it is a great book. It is a book that at times is challenging to read because you're so smart and intelligent and, and, uh, you're writing at a very high, high pitch level. But I think any lawyer in America or any engaged citizen in America, non-lawyer, would benefit greatly from reading this book. It's available everywhere and I highly recommend it. And thanks again for coming on. Thank you. It means a lot, Eric. Thank you so much. Take care.